Hello, are we here? Happy Tuesday. Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to uh, to Dispatch Live. Um, Steve and Jonah were not in a terrible time machine accident. I'm Declan Garvey, uh, editor of the Morning Dispatch, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Andrew Egger, my colleague and associate editor. Um, to those of you who are tuning in live, thanks for spending your Tuesday night with us. Uh, to those of you who are listening later, we appreciate you as well. Uh, we've got a fun show planned for tonight. We're going to dive into one of the most significant primary races uh, that is left on the calendar before the 2022 midterms, um, and then engage in a little rank punditry, as Jonah would like to say. Uh, we've heard some of you like we've heard some of you like rank punditry. So, uh, so we're going to try our hand. We're going to dabble. We, we're going to dabble. We can. We'll see if we can uh, if we can hang with the big boys. So, um, and then we'll turn to to your questions, both. You know about the news and about uh, the dispatch and and anything else that uh, you've got on your mind. So does that sound good to you, Andrew? It sounds good. Yeah, we were also told, um, but when when we were kind of brought on on to to do this this to cover dispatch live that we should maybe share some some stories uh, of of our having been here for a long time um, because we have been here for a long time. I'm gonna quit Slack so you guys are not. Uh, assaulted with with notification messages which means Declan you are going to need to be the one who is uh, grabbing those sorts of things as they come in see we're amateurs at this sort of thing but we're doing what we can um so yeah uh the uh, I guess I guess to begin with uh should I let you do it do you want to ask me where I what why, why I'm where I am or do, should I just launch see we don't we where, don't where are you and why are you where you are I'm glad you asked Declan I'm in St. Louis Missouri right now this is not unfortunately my home these are not my books and bookshelves um, I, uh, I am from St. Louis, so these books and bookshelves belong to my parents. Um, but the reason that I am here, other than to see them, is that there is a big primary happening uh, in about two weeks in Missouri. Missouri used to be uh, a swing state, um, not so much at all anymore. It's basically just red now. So the big election that matters when Missouri is on the calendar is the one that happens now, which is the Republican primary uh, for U.S. Senate. As it happens, um, it is Senator Roy Blunt, longtime fixture of uh, the Republican Party, um, kind of high up in, in leadership, uh, uh, basically an establishment Republican's establishment Republican, um, very interested in, in deal making and, and just kind of like keeping, keeping the wheels of industry turning in Congress. Um, he is retiring. He's out of here. And so it is a wide open uh, Senate primary to replace him. And there is a pretty remarkable cast of characters who are all lined up uh, for the job. Um, maybe to go from, is it, is, it, I, I, is it too editorial to go from least interesting to most interesting? Um, let, let, let's do, um, I let's think go we've in got inverse our order. Hooked. We'll go in inverse order of polling. That is, that's probably the easiest thing. So there's, there's, there's Billy Long in fourth place out of the, out of the contenders who kind of matter. From the rural Southwest of the state, he's a former auctioneer, not polling very well. Interesting guy though. Um, then there is, uh, in a basic tie for second, there's Vicki Hartzler, longtime congresswoman, um, basically a movement conservative um, to the extent that that still means anything. Uh, and then there is Eric Schmidt, um, who is the current attorney general of the state, um, relatively, so, so basically straddles the line between kind of establishment guy and, and, and Trumpy uh, sort of new Republican, um, signed on, for instance, to Ken Paxton's uh, election certification lawsuit at, uh, in the wake of the 2020 election, things like that. But then the, the front runner for now, for 
who knows what reason, is Eric Greitens, who you may or may not remember if you've ever followed Missouri politics. He was run out of town on a rail in 2018. He's the former governor of the state. Um, and he got into some real bad scandals in 2018 um, of an extramarital affair nature uh, where a woman, his hairdresser, actually um, accused him. They, they, they had an affair, and then she came forward to accuse him through a, a weird set of circumstances. She actually didn't first bring the allegation forward. It was her then husband who she was kind of confessing this all to, who he leaked it, he leaked it later. But anyway, um, that that he had done some some really kind of weird uh not just not just not not your grandfather's extramarital affair maybe is the way to um there was there was there was bondage involved and and uh some coercion and a nude photo that was taken without her consent allegedly um this is all allegedly i should say um she alleged this he denied it all um that uh that he had that he had taken a photo of her uh in his basement nude in order to blackmail her against coming forward with the uh with the affair um, so that was all not so good. He already did not have a lot of super close allies in the legislature, so they so nobody really had a problem um, when Republicans investigated those and those uh, allegations and found them credible. It was not uh, it, it, it was not a huge problem uh, in, in any of their kind of uh, inner monologues for them to basically say, "Yeah, we're going to move forward with impeachment," and he resigned to get out from in front of that. So he quit. Josh Hawley, uh, current U.S. Senator from Missouri, was one of the leaders in pushing him out. Right? He was uh, Attorney General at the time. Yes, yes. Thank you for mentioning that because I was I was going to forget another weird wrinkle is that yes, Josh Hawley, his office was was sort of front and center in investigating this and some other scandals that were going on um, um, at the time for Greitens, uh, and he basically said, yeah, these things are credible. And at the time, Greitens really threw him under the bus. He, he, he said, you know, Josh is better at press conferences than he is at the law. He's aiding and abetting the left and helping me out with all of this. At the time, Eric Greitens was the more uh, powerful of those of the two Republicans. Uh, it, Holly was at that at that time running for Senate against then incumbent Democrat Claire McCaskill. And it was kind of like, wow, uh, Eric Greitens is kind of stabbing Holly in the back here. It might be the thing that undermines his, his election chances. It turned out Holly was fine. Uh, Holly, known to be the kind of guy who remembers this sort of thing, an ambitious man himself, like Eric Greitens, um, did not endorse Eric Greitens in this race. He endorsed uh, Vicki Hartzler, one of his competitors. Um, but it's been known for a long time. And I don't, I don't want to spend the, the whole hour talking about this or anything. I definitely could. It's very interesting to me. But it's just one primary. Um, he, he uh, it's been thought for a long time. Greitens both has a very low ceiling and a very high floor. Um, the reason being that there was kind of a, a, a significant portion, a minority, but a, a large portion of the Republican electorate who kind of thought he had been ill-used the first time around. Um, so it was kind of thought maybe he's going to hover at a pretty stable twenty-five to thirty percent in this primary. When he comes back, you know, kind of swinging the uh, waving the MAGA flag, endorsed by, um, uh, I don't remember exactly how all the endorsements line up. He's paying Donald Trump Jr.'s uh, wife, wife, fiance, significant other, Kimberly Guilfoyle. Yeah, um, he, she's on her, she's on his campaign. Um, he's affiliated with Steve Bannon. Um, so, so it's he's he's very much running in that kind of very online MAGA media space. Um, so he's got a, you know, 25%, 30% of Republicans are going to likely show up and vote for him. So the question is, who's that other 70% going to go to? 
And uh, it's been, you know, before even all these other candidates that I talked about, before they all hopped in the race, it was like, well, maybe it'll just be one or two people and he'll place second. Um, and now if there's no runoff in Missouri. He might be able to win with 25 or 30 percent. So that's what's in, that's that's an interesting thing. That's what I'm out here covering this yeah, week. So what um, the you know, it's it's obviously incredibly interesting uh, to see who's lining up behind who in this race. Holly is um, Hartzler, I, I believe, rep Representative Hartzler. Um, Schmidt, as as you know, a current state official, has a lot of uh, backing from the legislature and, and and things like that within Missouri, um, kind mm -hmm. of the more local angle. And then there's kind of the big fish, which is Trump hasn't necessarily weighed in, uh, other than to say probably not Hartzler, uh, yes. which by process of elimination kind of leaves you with either Schmidt or Greitens, but what, what, what is your thinking on where that goes? Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, you hear very different things from different Republican strategists, obviously, because I think the kind of implicit understanding is that in a race like this, where everybody is sort of trying to assume the mantle of Trump in their, in their campaigning um, and where the race is already neck and neck and neck, if he comes into the primary, it seems very likely that it will be determinative. It, I mean, I've talked to people who even think, I mean, Billy Long is polling at like 10% right now, but I've talked to people who, who are like, sure, yeah, I mean, if Trump came in and endorsed him, uh, which so far, he Billy Long is the only candidate in the race that Trump has really said nice things about. He, he sent out a, a really goofy statement like a couple of months back where he's like, I wonder if the if the great people of Missouri have looked into Billy Long. You know, he's great. Uh, this And he, he literally says in the statement, this is not an endorsement, but I'm just asking, you know. Um, and so he, he gave the boost to Long there. And then, yes, about a week or a week, two weeks ago now, he sent out another statement um, where he basically just said, uh, I'm not endorsing anybody, but I know who I'm who I'm extra not endorsing, and that's Vicki Hartzler. Um, it, it's it's sort of a weird thing, yeah. I mean, she she is um, like I, like I said, long time basically just kind of movement conservative. She she is the person who I think scans most as an establishment. Uh, uh, the, the the way to put it, maybe not like your your typical idea of like what an establishment Republican looks like, but insofar as there is like a, like an a party establishment in Missouri, uh, she has been embraced by them. So like a lot of a lot of blunt zone people have have been helping her out. She's she's endorsed by a lot of current Republican senators more more than anybody else. Um, she has five, I think five or so, and uh, and Eric Schmidt has two, Mike Lee and Ted Cruz. Um, so it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. And, and also she came out swinging very hard against Greitens. So she's kind of alone in doing that, um, among the current field. Uh, so, so not in, an incredible surprise, um, that, that, that Trump sees her as, as not his, his go-to guy. It's kind of interesting. I mean, there's a lot of outside spending coming in against Greitens, um, just kind of from outside Republican groups who don't want to see him, um, win, uh, the primary because, a, then he would be carrying forward the flag, and that's kind of embarrassing all on its own. And B, because in theory, he is, even though I don't necessarily buy this, enough of a liability that 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 he could actually put the seat back in play, um, right. which which Missouri Republicans have a memory of that. One decade ago, uh, they they kind of fumbled the a winnable seat back to the aforementioned Claire McCaskill because. Um, the the Republican who had gotten into the general election against her uh, explode, you know, just com complete campaign implosion, um, and she kind of coasted a reelection.
Right. Yeah. And um, we definitely want to get to get to the next stuff that we're we're planning on talking about here. But just quickly, I know that um, as of I think two days ago, uh, Missourians will now at least have a a third choice, an independent candidate, um, in addition to whoever the Republicans nominate um, and and the Democratic candidate, and that's uh, John Wood, who's an attorney who um, uh, held roles in in the George W. Bush administration. Um, was serving as an investigator on the January 6th Select Committee and recently stepped down to announce that he's launching an independent bid uh, in Missouri for this Senate seat. Um, he just got over the uh, signature requirement that's that's uh, needed to get on the ballot um, ahead of next month's primary. And, um, you know, people are talking about whether he's in it to actually try and win. I think that's far-fetched and, and even he knows he's probably not going to likely win. Is is his impetus for getting in basically a break class in case of emergency and Eric Reitens wins the nomination and, and throw it to the Democrat? Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the understanding people have. I mean, I I, I do kind of wonder what the... I, I have paid far less attention to this than to any of the rest of this stuff. So if you even if you were taking every other word I said before as gospel, this is rank speculation. Um, I mean... I guess you could you could make the argument that like you know remember 20, 2016 when you had the the two bad choices in a lot of people's minds and then everybody was kind of scrambling like oh my gosh who's the next guy who's the next guy and it ended up being Evan McMullen <laughs> um, and I think if you if you watched that race um, and you were like oh man uh, everybody kind of kind of got caught with their pants down and no really viable I mean I guess Gary Johnson was also running um, at that time. Um, but if, you know, if you wanted to make the independent bid, I guess, go ahead and jump in now. And then, uh, and then at least you'll, you'll have a head start if it ends up being the, the break glass in case of emergency situation. But, but I don't know, I haven't talked to the campaign at all. I would like to, I would like to, once this, once this primary is over if, and if, if it seems like he's like serious about the thing, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, you've got the, the rest of the week in Missouri, your home state to, uh, to explore. Um, I, and kind of, you know, we touched on Trump's endorsement, whether it matters as much, uh, in, in Missouri, we'll see in, in the next couple of weeks. But um, the the real, you know, the the dessert of this conversation, uh, as it <laughs> seems to have been for a lot of these dispatch lives and a lot of, uh, you know, conservative media speculation over the past 18 months is, uh, you know, we're actually getting kind of close to when presidents or presidential candidates start to declare uh, for the 2024 race at uh, this point in the cycle, you know, typically not before the midterms, but we've gotten some reporting uh, from the Washington Post and other sources that uh, we might be having a certain former president trying to become a future president officially with the FEC uh, in the next couple months here. And so I think it's a, a good time to, to check in and then we'll get to the Democratic side afterwards. But, um, you know, we've seen a lot of these primary races over the course of the past several months, Trump has the candidates that he's endorsed have won a decent amount of them. Uh, you know, J.D. Vance in Ohio, uh, uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. He's taken some big losses in in Georgia in particular. I know that you were covering a lot of those races closely. Um, really a mixed bag. Uh, and then, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've gotten some, you know, it's, you don't want to look too closely at, at one individual poll, but uh, this New York Times-Siena College survey that uh, was released last week uh, was kind of the talk of DC for the past 10 days or so. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll have more on it in, in the morning dispatch tomorrow. Spoiler for those of you who tuned in. But um, 
basically saw that that Trump is falling, that his grip on the Republican Party is not as strong as it once was. Uh, you know, still far and away the number one candidate in in a lot of this polling, but by a much slimmer margin than he has been previously. And Ron DeSantis is incredibly strong, both in those polls of of Republican primary voters, but also in the uh, you know backroom fundraising campaign and kind of the shadow whisper who's getting who on whose campaign team and and kind of these early talks uh, about you know what 2024 is going to look like. So, um, you know, I'll pause there. What are your initial thoughts? Do you think that uh, there's anything to this uh, DeSantis wave or is he Scott Walker 2.0 where in 2015 guaranteed to win the nomination and flamed out in about six weeks? I am excited. I'm extremely excited to find out. The first thing I have to say uh, on the subject of Trump getting back into the race is I just, can, can you go ahead and do it? I'm so, I, if he's going to do it, just do it. The, this, this whole, the whole like feeding frenzy of the, like, will he or won't he like the, the dancing with the stars, I don't know, reality um, game around of, of like people, ch- different outlets chasing the scoop. I hate it so much. I hate it so much. It's so it's, it's just, the, it's, it's very, you know who doesn't hate it. And you know, who actually loves it is t- Donald it, Trump, oh, <laughs> which well, is, yeah, which is, right. is why, I mean, he, he want it gets, him in the news, it get you know we're talking about him. Not that we wouldn't be talking about him anyways, but a little bit more. Where if he just declared one, there's the FEC requirements about fundraising and and um, you know campaign structure and things that he would then have to stand up relatively quickly uh, to to get up to speed. But also um, then it kind of it's game on right now. It's mm-hmm. he gets to dance around and um, all these all these articles speculating about what it is and what it isn't. So, mm-hmm. so I'm, I am basically of two minds, which is good for me because it gets me out of having to make any kinds of predictions that might end up being wrong. Um, one is I, I, I do think like th- there, there's an element of kind of like self-congratulation to a lot of the, um, Hey, the grip is slipping, you know, like finally guys like Teflon Don is, is obeying the laws of physics um, and, and all of his villainy is, is catching up to him, you know, that sort of thing. When, when in reality, I mean, he solidified his grip on the party during his presidency, right? He didn't need like an iron grip to win the primary <laughs> and he didn't even need an iron grip to win the general. I mean, there was still like such a, a real kind of uh, overrepresented, obviously, but like a significant never Trump contingent to, to the Republican party, um, you know, going into certainly the 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 Access Hollywood tape, um, that, that that was a moment where where there was like real division of of people being like, look, is he going to get out of the race? Like, what's going on? Um, and he still won, and he still solidified the party behind him after the fact. You know, just by just kind of the sheer exercise of of, of raw political power um, and wielding what at the time was sort of a uh, uh, not. In t- not in the entirety of the Republican Party, but a very energized portion of the party, basically wielding it against anybody who opposed him, and kind of, kind of, you know, knocked out everyone who who at that time was was opposing him, and and kind of achieved a sort of a sort of unison, a sort of unanimity that way. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what to make of those things. It's, I, I certainly don't see Donald Trump slips among Republicans as in and of itself evidence that he would not win a Republican primary. Obviously, right. Um, and, you know, and, but, right. 
Um, it, it all sorry. depends on what the what the how the rest of the field shakes out, obviously. Right. So right. And I think that's part of the reason why he's leaning towards this early announcement. You know, it, it's been the shadow campaign for for a couple months now, but him officially announcing whether it's in September, as it has been reported in in a couple different places, or shortly after the midterms. Um, then if he's already a declared candidate in the race, anybody else announcing um, is basically taking the fight to him head on. Whereas mm -hmm. if he uh, dawdles a little bit, waits around and lets a couple other people jump in the race first, they can, you know, it'll be BS, but they could plausibly say like, oh, we didn't know if, if Trump was going to run or not. So I wanted to get a head start and, and mm -hmm. on my campaign and I'm not going to drop out now because I've already gotten such great momentum with the American people. But um, that's that's a great stump speech. Um, yeah, that, that's the thing. Use, but the thing that I don't understand about that line is that it I, it doesn't matter how I look at it. It is hard for me to think why Trump would want to prevent a reprise in 2016. Right. The only way I think I think the best chance that he has at actually securing the nomination is an enormous field. And that's not to say that he won't win it if it's just, you know, him versus uh one or two other candidates, but Thank you, Haley. this this is how I mean this is how he won in in 2016 and and to use Jonah's metaphor of, of belling the cat, um, where there were 16 candidates, I think, or possibly even more than that at some points, and nobody wanted, they were all fighting among each other uh, to to win the non-Trump vote. And then he just kind of coasted with his 30 that became 32%, that became 40%, that became 50% when it was just him and uh, Ted Cruz and John Kasich. But, um, you know, that, that could very plausibly play out again if we have a ton of candidates jumping in in the next couple months and we got a question from uh eric uh thank you ryan for sending that along who will be asking who will be the first candidate to declare after the midterms um you know it's a great question if it's not trump if he's already in as of september um you know i could see tom cotton being a candidate for for one of those early slots i could see uh mike pompeo being a candidate for one of those early slots i mean they've if you if you've been following uh, Pompeo and Cotton's travel schedule over the past several months, I think they very well could be have spent more time in Iowa and New Hampshire than they have in Arkansas and Kansas, respectively. Um, they are they are at every you know uh, <clears throat> family leader dinner in Iowa. They're uh, already kind of hosting town halls or, or Republican Party events in in these states they're in, I think, is a pretty clear sign um, whether or not Trump decides to run. Um, there are some other candidates, I think, that, you know, have been making similar rounds, Tim Scott being one of them, Nikki Haley, uh, Mike Pence, obviously, I think, is going to run no matter what. Um, and, you know, in terms of who announces first, it's it's really the people who, I think, need to build their name ID the most that will that will be doing that. You look at who were the first candidates to to jump in in 2016. I believe it was Rand Paul and Ted Cruz um, who had been just been elected to the Senate um, uh, a handful of years earlier, kind of needed to build up momentum a little bit uh, outside of their kind of initial uh, grassroots niche. Um, and I think we could see that you know that Tom Cotton probably does not have, uh, a name ID above 20%, 20, 
nationwide would be my guess. Um, and he's somebody that's going to need a lot of time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, I think the, the least likely candidate um, or the, the most likely to announce early are the candidates that are going to need the time to build the momentum and build the operation. Like Mike Pence doesn't need to announce right away. He's already known. He's a known commodity. Um, and, you know, he has his campaign team and, and staff that have kind of been with him through the vice presidency. And um, but there will be there will definitely be some jockeying that starts relatively quickly. I did want to say to go way back when, to when you brought up Ron DeSantis, and I, I don't expect him to be uh, hot off the blocks announcing either. Um, but uh, as far as the Scott Walker comparison is concerned, I think there I, I think there is no comparison. I think that that Scott Walker was the front runner because he'd been in the news a lot, right? I mean, like, like he'd had some really big wins. I think, I think Scott Walker, if, if Glenn Youngkin were the guy who were going to jump into the race um, and, and, and just get his name out there, I, I would see him as kind of comparable uh, to, to, to Scott Walker, just in terms of a guy who, who became kind of like a, a, a guy that every Republican feels pretty good about for a while. Um, but the reason I think that DeSantis has a lot more um, staying power than Scott Walker did, basically no matter what happens, um, has a lot to do with the kind of uh, smoky room type stuff, both in Republican politics and even just in conservative media, um, where even a lot of the people who you know, made their peace with the Trump era and kind of muddled along best they could, they didn't feel great about what they were doing at any point in that time. There was a lot of kind of cognitive dissonance you know, for, for people who worked in Republican politics for people who worked in conservative media with one of the facts of life being that if you ever cross Donald Trump and don't have like a, 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 a secondary kind of power base to retreat to of people who don't like Donald Trump, he's probably just going to destroy you because uh, that's what he does, right? Um, and so I think we have, we have this, it's not a handshake because it's not explicit. Nobody's like saying that they're doing it, but, but there is this real swell of, of, kind of dark matter energy toward Ron DeSantis from like everywhere in the party because he has just emerged as the person who is likeliest to challenge Donald Trump and win. And a lot of people see that. I mean, it's like, it's like kind of like why Donald Trump won in the first place, right? I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not prepared to fully string out that, that analogy that my brain tried to take me down just now. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's every publication, even the ones that are really still kind of kind and complimentary toward Trump, you are not seeing conservative media knock Ron DeSantis. You're just not seeing it. I mean, they're, they're, they're ready to go. They're ready for him to like be their guy to take them forward into the next era. And that's powerful. Scott Walker didn't have that. Uh, I mean, in, in, he was the front runner in 2015 or, or whenever it was that he started be, to be the front runner, but it wasn't like, it wasn't that there was any kind of consensus. That was just kind of what people were saying to bolsters. Um, and, and it was, there was a, there was a sense that it was going to be a wide open field and, and whoever won out would win out. And I, I don't think that's kind of the flavor right now. I think people, right. and people know. Scott, which Scott Walker was, was in the news a lot um, in the, you know, months and years leading up to that race because of the, the recall uh, effort in Wisconsin, there was kind of a natural, rallying around the flag effect among Republicans nationwide. Um, but one thing that DeSantis has done this really since, since Trump left office, he, you know, DeSantis was first elected in 2018, but um, really kind of kept his head down for the first couple of years as governor, um, you know, did a lot of actually pretty interesting um, kind of limited government conservative environmental action in, in Southern Florida and, um, wasn't really becoming, you know, a culture warrior that that he's known as now, 
that flipped with COVID and that flipped with Trump kind of exiting the scene stage right um, post-January 6th. And I think he really sensed an opportunity where we need a figurehead opposition to Biden uh, for these, you know, two years into the midterms. And, and then, you know, he's hoping to carry it beyond that. But he's really become kind of the uh, stand-in for, I am not for Biden, so who am I for instead? And it's been Ron DeSantis because he's positioned himself as kind of the totem on all of these issues that Republicans uh, care about right now. So that's COVID lockdowns and, um, you know, public health restrictions and things like that. He's, that was actually something that, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic, he's been uh, far more laissez-faire on, on that front and, and opening things up. Um, but he's really inserted himself in these bigger fights about um, education and schools using the the um, House bill. I'm going to forget the number. It's don't say gay is, is is how it's known. It's not necessarily the best description of the bill, but um, uh, so he's kind of inserted himself into that fight. He <laughs> weighs in all the time on what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter. Has nothing to do with him being governor of Florida, but by you know, saying that he's going to direct his attorney general to investigate whether the SC or the SEC is harassing Elon Musk, so he gets to go on Fox News and talk about Elon Musk, and that's something that you know plays very well with the base. The same thing happens with uh, a lot of the other big tech stuff. The um, Canadian uh, uh, trucker protest earlier in the year, DeSantis was uh, talking about that all the time because he uh, some somehow kind of with a bank shot was, we're going to have Florida investigate GoFundMe because they were uh, dis or blackballing Canadian trucker protesters from raising money in another country. Like he just finds ways to take whatever the issue of the day is, make it somewhat relevant, tangential to Florida and what he's doing there so that he has a reason to talk about it and become kind of the conservative leader on XYZ issue. And I think he's done it very effectively. Um, we'll see if when other candidates jump into the race and are, you know, getting that airtime because they're declared candidates and being able to uh, be interviewed on a lot of different subjects that they can steal kind of some of that shine from him. But he's really done uh, wonders. And, and you're seeing it in this in this polling here uh, that, you know, if it's not Trump right now, it's DeSantis or bust kind of, you know, it's Mike Pence is at 8% in a lot of these polls. Nikki Haley will come in at like 4 or 5%. Uh, everybody else is at 1% or 2 And that's because you're really only hearing uh, from, on a, on a national level, from you know people who will end up voting in these primaries. You're hearing about Trump and you're hearing about DeSantis. And that's kind of uh, something that will be a real challenge for people that are trying to break through that duality when they, when they announce. Yeah. So with that, um, I think that we just got a question from Jason Godwin. Thank you for that. Uh, taking us to our next subject, which is, do you think Biden will run again in 2024? Um, and if he does, does he receive a strong challenge? You know, my, it's the same poll that, that the New York Times uh, Siena poll that we talked about earlier with Trump was even worse for Biden. Um, you know, we, we talk about is Trump's grip slipping uh, on the Republican Party. Biden's is well off the handle with the Democrats. He really has no sway whatsoever with, with, with his own party. Um, I think it's almost two thirds of respondents in that poll uh, said that they wanted a different nominee in, in 2024, including, I 
more than nine in 10 young voters, young Democrats, um, you know, we've seen kind of stumble after stumble with the this administration, um, you know, both from the the center and from the center right critiques of, of kind of the way that the administration has been taking the country, but more importantly to Biden's uh, 2024 nominee chances is from the left. They are incredibly uh, disgusted with the way that he's governed as well. And it's not, you know, their, their criticisms are that he's not doing more to uh, exert executive authority and, and uh, doing more to yell at Joe Manchin even louder so that he <laughs> caves and, and does whatever they want to do in, in Congress. But there's kind of a real disappointment with his party. And, and as David has talked about um, time and time again, is that there's really no cult of personality propping Biden up the way that there was for Obama and the way that there was for Trump. Um, and when things are bad, when gas prices are, yes, they're coming down now, but they're still, you know, almost twice what they were a couple of years ago. Um, there's not much there to, uh, to sustain a kind of a prolonged, uh, renomination fight. So, uh, Andrew, do you just going completely off your gut feeling? Uh, I know you're incredibly plugged in with with the Democratic Party and and what's going on there. But do you think that he is the nominee in 2024? It is not at all implausible. Am I allowed to just say this? Oh, sure. Gut feeling. Gut feeling. Gut feeling. I'll just say gut yeah. feeling. Right. That's what you asked. Yeah. I think. I th yeah. I, I think he could totally not be the nominee in 2024. I mean, it's not like. It's, it's not like the Democrats have done a great job just kind of sweeping in their preferred candidate the last few times. I mean, he is the president. That helps. It helps when you are already the president. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't I mean, I don't think Bernie Sanders is likely to run again. So that helps. Um, now, now, now you got me thinking about all the other people who are maybe going to run. And now I kind of want to say maybe he will be the nominee again. I don't know. I don't, there is it's kind of the same thing. Right. I mean, like like think about where the Republicans would be right now if Ron DeSantis had not emerged as as kind of the the likely next guy. Like you need to coalesce around a next guy or you will not successfully challenge the guy right now. Um, and I don't know, I'm not sure who that would be for the for the Democrats. I mean, they have plenty of time to pick one, right? Um, right. The, but the, the problem is all the people who it would be ran against him in 2020 and lost really right. badly. Um, right. You know, it, like yes, Buttigieg and Sanders performed well in kind of some of those early nominating contests, but once you hit South Carolina and uh, Super Tuesday states, Biden just ran away with it. And obviously, I don't think if there were, if we redid that now with Biden being four years older and kind of seeing what the last four years were like, I might play out differently. But well, yeah, um, I think that's the big thing, right? I mean, I don't know, I don't know how you recapture kind of the the sense that got Biden elected president, which was here's the guy who's going to be kind of the steward of of the return to normalcy after this insane aberration of the Trump years and COVID. And I don't know at all. I mean, those are the big two uh, for, for Democrats, Donald Trump being president and then the pandemic. Um, and that basically carried him through the primary. And then it kind of carried him through the general too. I mean, it was kind of the, the cult of the cult of normalcy, right? I mean, it was, it was the, it was the return. It was the, and that's the way right. he talked all through there was governed for all America. And I think, I think he's kind of governed in a way where he has, I mean, I think I think he is in certain respects trying to appeal to to various groups, or at least trying to to. Is it maybe fair to say that he's sort of trying to keep each interest group as unmad at him as possible? He's like, oh no, like the 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 so the social democrat kids are are really mad. Let's like make some 
sort of lurch in the direction of of student loan forgiveness. And oh gosh, um, you know, Republicans are doing immigration jonesing again. Um, we'll, you know, we'll we'll keep Title 42 uh, going for a little while and just kind of try to string it along. Um, and but but there's no real unifying vision and there's no real like central constituency. Um, and it's being anti-Trump was that vision for a really long right, time. Right. It's not it worked. Um, it worked right. then because um, Trump was president. <laughs> right. And but now Joe Biden is, is the president. And uh, and it, that's, it's harder to do. That's so I think there was there was a report in the Washington Post this morning uh, from Matt Visor, who's been uh, a really good documentarian of, of the Biden White House and kind of his line of thinking uh, over the past, you know, 18 months or so, and basically saying that. Biden, he has said every every time he's asked, he said he's going to run again. He um, has every intention to run again. Um, that he really means it if Trump is the nominee again. That that is kind of his motivating ethos is that you know if if Trump is the nominee again, then Biden has to run again to make sure that he never becomes president. Um, yeah, it's just it's, it's not a it's not the best logic um, per se, except that he did beat him once, and polling shows at least right now that that he would beat him again, even with the what we know of the past uh, year and a half of the Biden administration. So, um, you know, it I don't necessarily think that Biden's the best position to uh, stave off a Trump comeback in 2024. I don't know who that is for the Democrats instead. I mean, I, I have my uh, Colorado governor, Jared Polis, uh, moderate, normal guy campaign uh, teed up, ready to go. But I don't think that Democratic primary voters are, are where I am on that. And, uh, you know, what what do you who do you see as the three or four likeliest people to step up. Wait, I wanted, but, but before, before we go to that, I did want to get your thoughts on, on your hometown hero, um, the man, the myth, the legend, J.B. Pritzker, right? I mean, he's, he's suddenly generating Oscar buzz. I don't know what's going on with that. He, uh, well, he did contract the novel coronavirus today. So uh, hoping for a speedy recovery for him. I don't, I don't know what that boomlet was about last week or two weeks ago, where all of a sudden it was, uh, Gavin Newsom and J.B. Pritzker are the most likely to step up uh, if if Biden decides not to run in 2024. Uh, I think that whoever manages communications and, and press for Pritzker is very good at their job and, and getting their boss's name thrown out there in uh, in in these kind of stories. I think there's zero backing to that. Uh, one, you look at um, if. Yes, I'm, I'm from Chicago. If you look at the way that Illinois has been trending the past couple of years, it's one of the only states to consistently be uh, draining population. People are leaving kind of en, en masse. And uh, you've seen that kind of crystallized uh, in the past couple of months with some enormous companies, Caterpillar, uh, uh, Boeing, and, and Ken Griffin's Citadel uh, hedge fund have all kind of packed up shop and, and gone to greener pastures, both because um, of kind of the, the taxation regime in, in Illinois, but also recently uh, crime is is really gotten uh, even worse than than it's been in, in recent years. Um, since the pandemic, things have, have really kind of spiraled in, in that. And these businesses are basically saying that we don't want to be here if we don't have to be here, so we're not going to. Um, and so I, I think that any real uh, kind of assessment of Pritzker's record if he does decide to launch a presidential campaign 
uh, will not um, bode well for for him. And second, I think that they're you know that just being a uh, I will try to say this as uh, judiciously as I can, being a prominent politician in Illinois requires you to uh, do certain things and make certain uh, kind of moral uh, decisions that might preclude you from uh, kind of a, a, a real uh, assessment of, of your record. I think he has a lot of skeletons in his closet that um, just kind of local Illinois politics, uh, you know, backslapping and, and things like that, um, that, you know, would, would definitely come to the front in, in a presidential campaign. That my favorite story is um, one of his houses. He's um, uh, very, very wealthy and uh, descendant of, um, I, I believe it's the Hyatt fortune. Um, but uh, one of his houses uh, was essentially, they removed a toilet from it to avoid paying property taxes so that, uh, because it was technically uninhabitable if there's no toilet. And it, it's one of the best local uh, politics scandals uh, that I've ever seen. But there's a lot of little things like that that I think would add up with Pritzker. So um, I, I, I'm going to put the kibosh on, on that campaign before it gets started. I do think that there are other candidates that, that the Democrats could lean to. Um, but you know, I, I'm looking at this list, Washington Post, top 10 most likely 2024 can, uh, contenders. We like listicles. And behind number one of President Biden, we've got Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren. What what say you about those four? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was also scrolling through this list, um, you know, ahead of ahead of us us doing this because we talked about it. Um, and I mean, it just it, it I guess it just kind of highlights the bind, right? I mean, all of those people ran before. Nobody there is necessarily patched up any of their weaknesses that kind of made it hard for them before. I mean, plainly Kamala Harris is currently lashed to the Biden administration and has been sinking in popularity just as much as he has um, and was at, in fact, doing so faster. I don't, I haven't looked at her ratings in a while. I don't know whether he has caught up. Um, but, but plainly, I mean, she is, you know, to, it, it's really hard to see her kind of stabbing him uh, and and uh, may, maybe if he stepped aside and made her the heir apparent or something like that, it would be one thing. But like, but like, I don't see how she really puts herself forward as a um, real alternative path for the country. Um, Pete Buttigieg, I mean, very sort of put together, good on the stump, has some real hardcore fans that I've never really understood. Um, he was a mayor, and now he has added to that transportation secretary, which is bigger than mayor. Um, I haven't looked, are there other transportation secretaries who have gone on to do great things? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, Amy Klobuchar, I, I personally have always had a soft spot for Amy Klobuchar. Um, I covered her campaign in Iowa. Um, I don't know. She. It, it, I, I guess if there's anybody on this list who who could theoretically pick up the, Biden has kind of been a failed president in certain ways, she wouldn't actually say it that way. We need a new, a new, um, new leadership, and it needs. But also, we're maintaining the kind of moderate lane. I could see if there were energy to capture there, that she would be the one to capture it. But it also kind of seems like that's not where the energy is going to be. It almost, I mean, it. it I, I feel like if anything, it's, it's going to be the left, right? I mean, it's going to be look, 
it was we Hillary tried before. Your way. Yeah, yeah. Got us. Hillary yeah. beat Bernie and she tanked. Uh, Biden beat Bernie and he actually won his election incredibly because did you do you remember what the country was like in 2020? And he almost lost also, by the way. Um, and then he had four really unpopular years. So like you can you can totally see what the argument is for the former Bernie crowd. Their problem is who's their next figurehead, and it's not clear at all. So um, I mean, unless you'll be 35 by 2024. That uh, is true. That would be I can't I can't see it. Ha- I mean, I can't really. No, can you see that happening? It doesn't seem. No. Yeah. Um, no, not not yet. But with with that, I know we promised we would take some more listener questions. Um, and and in the description of this, we also uh, open ourselves up to kind of a general AMA about working at the dispatch. Uh, we've both been here for the whole time. Me like two days more than Andrew, which is I never let him forget. But um, you know what, Andrew, what what has been your favorite part about? Uh, uprooting and moving to a startup three years ago that is now no longer a startup, I guess. Yeah, it's weird to think about. This is the longest I've been in a job. Uh, it was two years at the Weekly Standard, one year at the Bulwark, and now three here at uh, at the Dispatch. Um, I uh, my favorite thing about it. I don't know. Um, that wasn't a good question all... to ask. No, no, no. I, 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 went, I started to, I started to, um, I couldn't think of something. So I started to savage the question, but in mid savaging, I thought of an answer. So the question's good again, in fact. And the answer is this. Um, I actually think that as far as places to work, like during the COVID pandemic, when everything went insanely remote and nobody saw anybody, and I keep hearing all of the uh, from all of these people who for whom that was like extremely traumatic and and like kind of alienating um, in a lot of ways. I I honestly felt like I had a a, a work community still for all of that time um, with 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 you and and everybody else. Um, of course, we were both. I mean that was also very early in the game and we were working like maniacs all the time and like kind of i kind of remember it like a dream you know like there were like it was you and me writing the morning dispatch every day really looking back on it i look back on it really fondly if somebody asked me if i wanted to go back in time and start again from there absolutely not i just don't think i could do it again you know i don't think i could like function at that high of a level um, we'd like, it'd be like 7 p.m. We'd be like, oh my gosh, do you think we can get Sarah to like kick us 500 words on something <laughs> to save our lives or something like that? Yes. Yeah. Um, for, for, for very, very early subscribers of uh, the dispatch, we launched in October of 2019 with essentially it, it was the G file um, and then TMD three days a week, twice a week. Um, it started three times a week. Yes. Yeah. I think it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, and then we, you know, it it was Andrew and I essentially kind of running that morning newsletter and we transitioned to going daily in early to mid January of 2020, which we like Um, requested, right? It was like, look, we're putting too much pressure on ourselves with these three inflection points. Maybe if we spread it out a little, like we can get a slightly healthier work-life balance. I don't remember if it worked out that way, um, or not, but we did do it. So we we made that switch. It was kind of like a, a beast to, uh, I mean, honestly, just getting the habits down and, and, and getting everything set up. And then about four weeks later, boom, COVID, uh, everybody's locked in, in, in their rooms and uh, we don't see each other for like a year, but 
Um, it was it was a good time. I let's see. Uh, we've got some questions here from if I'm looking down, that's because Ryan is sending them to Slack. Uh, do we ever go into the office? That's from Travis. We do. That's a great um, question, Travis. <laughs> Uh, we we should go in more. We have an office. It's in uh, downtown DC, about three blocks from the White House. Um, Andrew and I share an office with uh, with the other editor of the Morning Dispatch, Esther Eaton, who uh, joined us in late March and has been a fantastic addition to the team. Saved um, Declan's life. <laughs> yes, was, yes. He was ready to change his name, and and I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know where I was going. No, with that. We are we are glad to to have the help. Um, but yes, we do we do have an office. Uh, we try and go in there at least two or three times a week. Um, we have weekly or biweekly lunches on Tuesdays with the full staff, which are which are great to get everybody together. Um, we've got when we first when we first launched, we had this bizarre office space um, where we were technically renting only this one medium-sized room but it was in like the this wing of a of a downtown dc office building that was um otherwise unoccupied and all behind our key cards so really we functionally had this massive wing and there were like four of us who would go in and work from there and it was super super weird it was an um, office meant for like 60 or 70 people and four of us <laughs> would would sit and kind of each yeah. grab our own wing of the the cubicle block yeah it was kind of oppressive you never really even knew who else was in the office uh it was it was weird it was weird and we have now we've since thanks to uh the, the great efforts of of valerie and other people who help our lives continue to function um and we've moved into a much cozier different office building in a different part of dc i mean i don't know who, who cares about any of that um and now we have the opposite problem where we are, are staffing up and suddenly the cozy space is like oh uh where are we putting all of these people we have interns right now and they um, they kind of huddle in a pod, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's a, it's great. It's great to, it's great to, it's great to be back it years is. later, you know, and we, and we, I mean, we, we've been back in person, what, like more than a year now. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we've from John Cavalier, we've got, what is your favorite early blooper moment? Early blooper moment, like a mistake. Yeah. Do we make mistakes? Is that what he's asking? Uh, not that we admit to, to, uh, you know, all of our hundreds of, of, uh, loyal listeners. No, um, trying to think the, there were, there were a couple of the, um, so just kind of nowadays, uh, Esther and I are, are on the morning dispatch. We kind of, uh, plan and, and execute that on a day-to-day -day basis. When we first started, Steve who hired uh, Andrew and myself was a little bit more involved in the in the process, but not that much more because he was, you know, launching a company uh, and uh, doing everything that that entailed. And so I remember him, he had a meeting with us kind of early days, like you and I met at a Chick-fil-A and Union Station uh, for the first time, like two days before the company launched. Steve met with both of us a couple days after that and basically said, uh, I'm not going to have time to hold your guys' hands. We'll throw you in the deep end. You'll either swim or you won't. <laughs> I hope you swim. Um, and uh, you know, we've we've at least treaded water for for three years. I, I, I think some some could say we've done the, the backstroke or or whatnot. But um, there were definitely some some early times where you know I'd never been a journalist before. You had uh, that I you know either reaching out to 
flax on the hill and not having any idea what I was doing or, uh, you know, just sourcing things and figuring out how to how to cite some of this different stuff. I don't know. I'm, I'm filibustering for you to have an even better answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is not better, but I do. For, for me, I think it was it, it, those early deeply weird pandemic days of where, first of all, we're working insane hours. And second of all, we're barely leaving our homes and the way that that like compressed work and like personal stuff into like one thing. Um, and, and we, I, there were times where we like got the date wrong or not, not the date, like the day of the week wrong, wrong, right at the beginning. That's the first thing in the newsletter, right? It's like happy Tuesday, but actually it's Thursday, you know, like, um, stuff like that. Or, or there were definitely times, um, when like I would, I don't know, it'd be like one in the morning and I would send you a meme or something in Slack. And then like two hours later, I would, you or probably you honestly would just like barely discover that I had accidentally hyperlinked that meme instead of like one of the things that was worth your time was supposed to be because we were completely delirious, stuff like that. That was, you know, fun little Still, still happens from time to time, but uh, much less often than than it did. We've we've gotten some some good habit formation. Um, let's see, what do we got here? Are we J school grads? Have we ever worked on political campaigns? That's from Mark. Uh, you? No, and yes, respectively. Uh, not a J school grad, um, although. I know people who have done it and and really benefited from from doing that. Um, and then I, work on a campaign is kind of a uh, term of art. I, I volunteered on a couple campaigns in college, one being um, Charlie Baker in his governor race in 2014 in Massachusetts, um, and then did a little bit of volunteer work for the Jeb Bush campaign in 2016 uh, that you know, we, we don't need to, to dwell on, on that too much more, but how about, how about you? Uh, for me, the answer is no and no. I do not deserve to be here really at all. Um, I just, uh, I came straight here from undergrad. I was a history major in college and, uh, and you know, kind of backed into it with, with political writing for the, my, I minored in journalism at school. Um, okay. So I backed into it with just like kind of the the writing, I had the writing down and then I needed to learn the politics when I, <laughs> when I kind of got, got out here for which, uh, you know, Steve and all of the people at then at the weekly standard were extremely helpful because they kind of took me under their wing. Um, when I first launched on there as a basically, basically doing Esther's job. Um, but at the weekly standard at that time. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, I, 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 uh, people like people knock J school. I have never understood that really, um, I think that that the people that I know who who went to J school, the stuff that they excel in is stuff that I wish that I also excelled in. A lot of a lot of it's just sort of like knowing how to uh, manipulate the raw data streams of of you know um, federal reports, um, you know FOIA requests, uh, that the the kind of tools of investigative journalism that that they've been just kind of steeped in all of those things forever, and and that I still feel kind of hacky about. Um, but uh, but never had the pleasure. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll go someday. You know, uh, go back to re re return to education. Lifelong learners. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got a couple more, and we've got a couple more minutes. So let's do. Okay, see, I've got a serious one and a less serious one. Uh, and if anything else comes in through the transom in between, we can try and get to it as well. But from, somebody from please try. Me, somebody try to submit a like slightly silly question. We'll get that like. Yes. Um, 
So this is from Amy. Being young in your careers and in the polarized state of our culture and media, what do you do to stay unbiased? And how have the more experienced dispatch staff been an influence? Um, how, what do I do to stay unbiased? Um, I think a huge part of that, at least for, for me, has always been the 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 more I let kind of my work be the entirety of my life, the harder it is not to kind of get swept up in the um, teams, I guess. Um, when I when I try to like, and and not just my work, but kind of the, the politics itself, like right, like it's it's actually kind of easy, at least for us, I think, to, because there isn't a team that we attach to. There isn't really a team that wants us, honestly. Um, so that helps, you know, it's like, Hey guys, like, can we play? And they're like, no. And we're like, Oh, well then I guess we will uh, remain unbiased. <laughs> um, yes. But, uh, but uh, no, I mean, I, I think, I think honestly, the, the, the being a kind of niche product helps because we know the audience that we're writing for and that, that the audience that we're writing for the thing that they're here for is for us to just kind of like tell them the, 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 the specifics and tell the stories of it. And, and that you can kind of get swept up get you, you can kind of get yourself in the zone of, of caring about that work right of caring about like telling the interesting stories um because you know that there are people who want that and that that's fulfilling in and of itself and you don't you're not conceptualizing your own job as like um being helpful in like kind of some some grand cosmic sense um at least that that is the way i have felt about it um i have forgotten the first half of the question and also you should say your thing uh well my thing i would say uh i mean what what really has helped me is uh, i quit twitter about a year ago at this point um <laughs> i think that was that was a a pretty radicalizing uh, uh force for for evil in, in in my life for a while there um and what i replaced it with you know because I still have to read the news a lot of it, and I probably read more of it now than I did when I was on Twitter. But basically, what I do now is I've set up what's called an RSS reader that you feed a bunch of different news outlets into, um, and it spits out pretty much everything that they publish on their website. It's really helpful if you want to read the headlines of like 1,200 articles a day, uh, which morning newsletter editors uh, kind of have to do. And... I, what really helps me with the unbiased nature uh, aspect of it is having a really wide diversity of sources that I put into that. Um, and that like, just reading so that, you know, I, I have my own personal opinions, like, I don't think that will shock anybody, because uh, we all do. But, um, and, and it, I don't think it makes good sense to pretend otherwise, just because you're a journalist, you know, but I want to always be presenting the arguments in the most fair light possible. And that means understanding what the most, you know, even if I disagree with something, understanding how could somebody come to this viewpoint differently than me and why would they, uh, you know, what, what are the, uh, you know, what, what would drive somebody to think this and taking the time to understand that in part, because it, I just come across it naturally as I'm like reading all these articles throughout the day. Um, but even if I don't necessarily see it, I'm writing and thinking, okay, um, I know that there are people that disagree with my personal opinion about this and they're not stupid, terrible, awful people. Why, how did they get there? Why? And try and figure that out so that, you know, you can put that into the article that, um, you're working on and, and make sure that it's fairly represented. Uh, let's see. 
Okay, we've got. All right, I knew somebody was going to finally ask about the uh, the mustache. Thank you, Carmen, for that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's if we were doing this tomorrow, it would be gone. Um, but basically, I, I had COVID about a month and a half ago, and decided as a you know a fun treat for for myself that I would grow a mustache to deal with the boredom of, of sitting in uh, my parents' basement in Chicago. And then it turns out that my fiance actually really liked it, unfortunately. Uh, and so it has stuck around for the, for the rest of the summer, um, kind of solidified by the Miles Teller rooster Top Gun uh, craze that has swept the nation. But uh, it's not a long-term thing. And, uh, you know, I... I gave serious thought to getting rid of it right before we got on the the camera here, but um, I did not. So you're welcome. You are all of you dispatch listeners are among the last people that will ever see this. So, uh, and then last question, I think, and then we can can call it a night. Thank you to everybody who stuck with us. Is which is a better baseball city, Chicago or St. Louis? And I'll you have the harder case to make, so I'll let you go first. It's, why is it a harder case to make? Scoreboard. Is, is that is that all you got? No, that's the that's the big one, though. I mean, I can, you can you can kind of weren't you guys supposed to be a dynasty right now? What happened? I don't know. Like it's uh, I, I've never been to Wrigley. I've heard Wrigley is lovely. Um, I I think Chicago is a great baseball city. Um, you just oh, don't you're have supposed to make it contentious. People, we you know people tune in for the heated debate and yeah. Uh, I just think if you if you're from Chicago you kind of have to make it contentious. And if you're from St. Louis, there's no need. All right. Well, that was, <laughs> uh, yes. Congratulations on your slightly above 500 season. Uh, <laughs> week into the third wild card slot. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I guess if, if making the playoffs is, is your bag and not doing anything with it, then the Cardinals are a great um franchise for that but yeah you know, and then also of, winning 12 world series was the other thing yeah but like yeah. what nine years ago 10 years ago 11 11 wow um 11 yeah. and 16 as yeah. opposed to six which is much more recent six uh, and Wrigley uh, field is the best place on earth um it has only gotten better with age i haven't been there in like three years because of various every, every time i've gone home over the past two years three years ago it was pandemic or whenever that was they've been away and it's really um i feel like i need to go back there to recharge and become a full human being again and i've been away for too long my main power source so um <laughs> yeah the cardinals will... the, the cardinals are away from here right now and i actually had a brief panic attack earlier today thinking i might actually be here while they are in dc for uh three games against the nationals but it turns out that's next week so we should go you want to go let's do it all right let's do let's it, do it. All right. Well, thank you for uh, watching us make plans for next week and for, for tuning in to the, for the last hour. Uh, we hope that, you know, we had big shoes to fill and I don't know if we did or not, but you stuck around. So thank you. And uh, we will be back next week uh, with, with the regular crew and we're looking forward to seeing you then. Thanks a lot.